everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, and we're just really happy to welcome you guys to an education in investing in all kinds of companies, public, private, real estate, all sorts of businesses. And That's uh, true. Yeah. We're following the same formula. The same formula as what? As Warren Buffett follows, Charlie Munger. I mean, Beth Buffett probably owns more private companies than he owns uh, public companies. And mm. he owns real estate and he owns farms. And all of them are on the same formula. Formula I've been using for a long, long time, ever since you were a little kid. And yeah, I mean, it's a good point. You can use this stuff for more than just publicly traded companies. Um, but I know I'm focusing on publicly traded companies, so that's why I've been focusing on it on the podcast. Well, they take a lot less physical um, moving around, right? When you're looking at real estate, you got to get out there and take a look at it most of the time. And same thing with private companies. you got to go kick tires because they don't have as much disclosure. Public companies, you can do it almost entirely. I th Actually, you can do it entirely from your private office or your home or your bedroom or wherever you want to do it. Um, because yeah. the information's all online. And today, yeah, well, and also those other things require deals to be made. And that uh, takes a lot of time. And it takes, sometimes it takes being an accredited investor. So public companies takes, are often the way to go. And sometimes it takes a lawyer. Yeah, sometimes it takes a lawyer. a lawyer. Danielle does those deals sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's true. Really... So I know I know how they can be difficult. So, you know. I think I think it's cool that these principles can be used for um, this sort of really like any kind of investing. And I think it helps me to think about it from the framework of public companies and real estate, because those are the two things that are most accessible to me. Yep. And we are on part six of our multi-part series, which um, we've been doing on the four principles of investing. And this part that we're on right now, we've been doing moat. So now we um, last time promised to just give a few examples of companies that have moats and try to figure out, you know, what kind of moat it is. Because to me, that's the interesting part. Like I'm reading about a company. How do I get to, okay, this is clearly the moat. Do they have it strongly enough that I can depend on it? Or, um, or is it, is it a... Is it a breached moat? <laughs> well, let's let's talk about moat from the perspective of a of a website that you can go look up moat companies. How about that? that sounds awesome. Yeah. Not as awesome as it sounds, but it's still it's it sounds too awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, remember that when you're investing, you really have to rely on yourself. You you know, you have to be able to go pretty much against the crowd because real investing means you're buying something that's on sale, you're paying less than the value of this business or this real estate or this farm, You're paying less than its value. And that means almost inevitably, you have to buy when there's fear around this thing that you're buying. Somebody doesn't want that house. Most people don't want it. Okay? Yeah, and as we've discussed before, often that's because they have a short term view on their investing. Yeah, short term, which means not, what's... not always, not always, but not often. Always. Yeah. Almost always, though, because, for example, in 2009, um, right here in Georgia, where we live, 
There were all kinds of houses going to the courtroom steps, one after the other, to be foreclosed on and sold at the courtroom steps. And, you know, for the first few months of that in 2009, there were no buyers. And part of the reason was people were afraid. And when they were afraid, they didn't want to take hard-earned cash because you couldn't get a loan, right? You had to go get cash and, um, and put that into a house. They were afraid to do it. They had the cash and were afraid to do it. I mean, people were buying homes near me that rent for $1,000 a month. They were getting them for $50,000. I mean, wow. that's just off the chart, phenomenal deal, right? But people were afraid, and that's why that happens. And so you have to be ready to move against the fear that's out there. And the only way you can do that without turning it into just pure gambling is to know a, the, have a very high level of comfort with the long-term value of this thing you're buying. And the mm. key is long-term, Danielle, because yeah. if you try to look at it at a year or two, you're, you know, you'll find that most of the time the fear, as you've pointed out many times, the fear is genuine and it has a real reason behind it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not like something that you need to get over and just pretend like it doesn't exist. It's yeah. something that's actually informative to me. It's something that says, hey, like, I need to take another look at this. There are a lot of people who think that this is a bad decision. And I get it, you know, at that time when real estate was crashing, we didn't know. It's so easy to look back and go like, oh, like it's it was just so obvious. But at the time, nobody knew if it was going to get worse. So it wasn't obvious. And to people who had enough money where they enough cash where they could float some into some investments and still feel like they might be OK, those people could use it. And the people who, you know have whatever savings and like that's all they have I, I don't know if I would say like putting it into a hard asset like a house is the way to go in a time of crisis well I'll tell you I you know it depends on the crisis right but if we're talking 2009 it was on hindsight absolutely the way to go and even you know into into stocks in 2009 it was the way to go you you basically yeah, couldn't in a, in miss a big way it's investing it's like betting on the future of the country really because if you're assuming that the u.s is going to bounce back then from a long-term investing perspective you know finding a decent investment and going for it is always going to pay off long term if you think the u.s is going to continue to do well and and, it, and if it and if it's a company that you understand and it has a big moat Yes, yeah. it okay, will pay so let's off. talk about our moat examples. Okay, so the moat example, number one moat example is the house next door in your neighborhood where you live and you have a high degree of confidence in the schools, the commute, the people who are there, the neighborhood, the quality. You feel strongly the reason you're living there is because in 10, 15 years, it's going to be better than it is today or it's going to be as good as it is today. Okay. That's so let me remind moat. everyone of our of our moat types. We have brand, yep. toll bridge, which means that it's difficult for anybody else to come into that particular business. We have price, um, meaning that they're the low cost provider. Yep. We have switching moat, which means it's hard or painful to change from that company. And then we have a secrets moat, which are like patents and trade secrets, like Coca-Cola has protected their um, their recipe for Coca-Cola. Yep. So that, okay, so that's an interesting one that you brought up the house because 
I don't know what that is. Maybe a brand moat? See, it's weird to apply these terms that you think of as applying to companies pretty easily, but then apply them to a house. I would say brand or switching. Yeah, I think I think brand is the deal. And the, and the reason is, is because you, your confidence in a brand is you're going to get what you think you get all the way out into the future and it will yeah. remain strong. And so the thing that makes a, a house a good bet or a good investment, if you've judged the neighborhood correctly, is location. And in real estate, we always say it's location, 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 right? Because that's like saying brand moat, brand moat, brand moat. This is the the neighborhood has a certain quality and that quality is going to exist in 10 or 15 years. And that means people will continue to want to buy it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, interesting to think of a house as a brand moat, sort of. Yep, there's, only, there's one more that I, I think I have to add to the whole pile that doesn't really fit anywhere else. And that's the networking effect that you'd get from yeah, something well, you like Facebook. That. You mentioned that last time yeah. and we discussed whether or not that was a real brand. Yeah. So that's a I don't possible know. I don't know if thing. I'm convinced. I know. But I know, a house, I know a house isn't a network effect. House is definitely not a network effect. So let's talk about some companies that are, well, first off, I was mentioning a website where you can what? go and look up wide moats and that's Morningstar.com. Um, okay. Morningstar will give you two weeks free. Um, you can get in there and play around and it's really a great source of data. They have, it's one of the few websites out there that has deep data on companies, meaning going back 10 years or more. And um, they do, a, they're really into our style of investing there, um, which is hilarious given that Morningstar sort of founded itself as a, as a judge of mutual funds. And so <laughs> the Morningstar five-star mutual fund versus a four-star mm. mutual fund is a, mm. you know, a, a rating system for mutual funds, but they have, you know, they have discovered the power of, of thinking like Warren Buffett and have adapted their website to his thoughts about moat. And so they have a whole section of their website, which is deep moat companies. And they even have a kind of index of deep moat companies that they change on a quarterly basis, um, which is, I think is very useful. I think you have fun with that if you wanted to play around with it. Um, they call it deep moat companies. That's what you look for. They actually, they call it wide moat Focus Index, Morningstar <laughs> Wide Moat Focus Index. Focus Index. Yeah, okay. and you can Google that, and it'll come right up, and you don't have to have a a password or anything. You can get right in there. Isn't and, it funny all these things that like we we've come up with um with sort of visual versions of of some of a concept like this moat thing, and now it's like you talk about deep moats, and they're talking about wide moats, and I'm talking about breaching moats. And... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's like, so, so Morningstar has this idea that a company can have a thin moat or a narrow moat or a wide uh, moat. And, yeah. and then, then that really confuses the issue to me because a, a moat is an intrinsic characteristic that protects the company from competition. And fair enough, you're going to have varying strengths of that. Um, but as a result of their sort of, you know, splitting hairs, I, I'm not so sure that we end up with companies that I'm thrilled with uh, being on the moat pile. But, you know, essentially knowing that a company has a big moat is just like knowing that the real estate is good. You got to know the neighborhood. You got to yeah. know the industry. That's the neighborhood, right? And you got to know the house. And you can make some assumptions about the house, given that it looks good. But at the end of the day, you're not going to buy that house next door without having an inspection. 
And that means something like a deep look at the numbers that are behind this company and understanding where those numbers are coming from. So one of the things that Morningstar does is similar to what we do on our website at Rule One Investing is to determine that a company has a moat based on a scan that their computer can do. So rather than looking at it from a subjective point of view and saying, oh yeah, this is a price mode or a brand mode or a switching mode, which is what we suggest you do, they're gonna just run it as, and it'll spit out companies that have a couple of things that wide moat companies tend to have in common. So hmm. I thought those were valuable for you to pay attention to. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is that it has a high return on equity. Okay, so right, and so now we're talking about numbers that indicate a good moat. Right. High return on equity. Right. So you know how we say we really want a good return on equity, and we're looking at ten percent or better, um, and we could almost say, well, the bigger the better. So they they say, okay, a high return on equity, and then they follow that up and they say, well, but you can get high returns on equity just by borrowing a lot of money. Hmm. Right. Because you've got the money to use to generate earnings, but it's not really being counted when you figure yeah. out what your return on equity is. And some some companies do that and they sort of juice their return on equity, which is why we use return on invested capital. And Morningstar okay. doesn't use that. So that's a little bit of a difference there that it makes me a little nervous that companies can fake their ROE. And well, get that's a, a really good, score. good so if I'm using Morningstar, I need to watch out for that, for, yeah. for having a, return, a high return on equity that's been propped up by uh, borrowing money. Yep. And you remember okay. that return on invested capital is? I do not remember. Return on equity, which is earnings divided by equity. And it's so it's the same thing, except it's earnings divided by equity plus debt. So essentially, okay. return on invested capital is what Warren Buffett looks at as the single most important number. And I do too. And the reason is because debt is deadly. And you really want to know what return on invested capital is because that's going to tell you that the company is actually generating a real return based on the money they borrow. Yeah. Very debt important. I like that. Yeah. Okay, what else do they say? Okay, so the second thing they say is you should look at free cash flow divided by revenue. So this is their own sort of version of this. And we, we do the same thing when we teach classes about this, but we have our own version. I call it the free cash flow ratio, which is really free cash flow divided by net earnings is what I'm, I'm looking at uh, for different reasons than they're looking at it. But they're looking at free cash flow divided by revenue. In other words, what, what part of their revenue is actually available to the owners after you pay all the expenses with cash and then take out your working capital and then remove all the money that you have to spend on replacing capital equipment like railroad tracks and stuff like mm -hmm. that, right? I mean, we were just out here looking at, at railroad tracks out not too far from our house and we saw this train stopped on the tracks with lights all over the place at night and they had one of those machines that was punching out the railroad tie from out from hmm. underneath the track. It would punch it out. Imagine how hard that thing would have to hit a railroad tie. So it would yeah. it would pull the, the spikes 
punch the tie, it would be spit out one side, and they'd shove another tie in there and bang down the spikes all in one move. And it was like, wow. You start to realize that railroad companies have to do that all the time. They have to take some of your free cash flow out of your pocket as the owner, and they got to replace railroad ties all the time forever. Yeah. You, you know? I mean, think about that compared to Coca-Cola, where they don't have to do anything new. They've got a syrup that they figured out, you know, first with cocaine about 120 years ago, and then they had to replace the cocaine with something equally addictive, so they used sugar. And now they've got this formula that's been going on for 100 years that people are completely addicted to, and it's like the perfect business, according to Charlie Munger, who loves Cokes, <laughs> and so does Warren Buffett. And who deny the addictive qualities of sugar, but they're all. I guys. find that so amusing because I like don't. Occasionally, I'll have a diet coke as a special treat, but I don't drink sugary sodas. And obviously, like it's such a um, a huge movement now to to avoid sugary drinks. It's just like empty calories. You know, it doesn't make you full or anything. And um, and I just even with all of that, like find it really sort of anachronistically enjoyable that they love Coke so much and are so like unabashedly in favor of drinking. What do they drink? Like five Cokes a day or something? Warren drinks I mean, seven or eight Cokes a day because he said, I just really like it, you know? It's nuts. I know. It's really, that's a generational difference right there. And of course, Coca-Cola has to worry about losing its moat, particularly in the United States where its sales are going down um, over time, and um, and it's generating ah. three quarters of its sales from around the world, not the United States. So mm -hmm. it's pitching it's pitching its its heinous, you know, sugar addictions out to the third world. So anyway, well, that's, and it's not it's not their only product either. No, they they're, own they're running to massive numbers of other drinks that you see on the shelf that you would never know actually are owned by Coca Cola. It's pretty interesting. Except that they're on the shelf, which is how Coca Cola. Yeah. That's defends right. Defends its brand. So right. let's let's talk a little bit more about what Morningstar has out there because we wanted to look at some companies and talk about things that, you know, how would you know this company's got a moat? So they they divide free cash flow by revenue and they come up with a number. And so the companies that, that uh, they list as of September, when you Google Morningstar wide moat, um, Google... Uh, 2016 as well because it'll come up with stuff from years ago on oh, Google. Okay. Okay. Um, so always put a date in there and a month and a date would be good. So their latest one that I could see was September 16th, and they have a uh, they have a, a series of companies. And I'll tell you what I think just because we're gonna have to I, I've got to go to the airport here and I I don't I hate to cut this <laughs> short, but I've got to fly to San Diego right now. And we put this off a little bit because you got you got a sore throat last night. So here's here's what I, I want to do. Having technical and health difficulties, unbelievably one after another. I know. And I, we always think we're just going to bang right into the subject here. And I thought we were going to just bang right down this list. But, it, you know, I think what we talked about was pretty valuable. So I'm going to give you a few companies to think about for the next oh, few Oh, that's days. a good idea. Yeah. Well, this Morningstar info is really good info. Yeah, it's pretty that. it's pretty handy. Okay, so I'm going to give you ones that aren't crazy hard tech companies um, or biological companies, which are difficult to figure out. So here's here's the little list. Okay, you ready? Okay. I'm okay. Ready. 21st Century Fox. 
Okay. okay. 21st Century Fox. What is this a list of? Companies are, with good moats. These are companies in Morningstar's wide moat portfolio that are, okay. are just up to date. These are the ones that they are thinking are the most deserved right now of being two things. Number one, a wide moat company. And number two, the price is substantially below what Morningstar thinks the value is. Okay. Let okay. me repeat so that it's again. A good, it's a good place to start. Yeah, it's a great place to pick up ideas. Um, and you shouldn't just go on their basis of their view of value. You know, you got to look at your own and you got to figure it out. And we've talked a lot about how you do that. Um, but these companies are to some degree below Morningstar's valuation. Now, I don't think they actually are substantially below real value. And part of the reason I don't think so is because there's not very many gurus that I follow who are buying these companies right now. So remember, this is this recording is not for you to use as a, you know, like think that we're going to recommend companies to you or give you advice about yeah. stock investing. Absolutely. And all not. you're doing is listing stuff you're seeing on a website. Yeah. So I'm not saying run out there and get these, but let's take a look at, at what next week we'll talk about what each one of these has that makes it a wide moat company from Morningstar's point of view beyond the fact that they have high return on equity and high free cash flow to revenue. What else is there? You know, what kind of moat do they have? So here we go. 21st Century Fox, that's F-O-X-A is the symbol, Fox A. Walt Disney, D-I-S. Okay. Okay. Um, Polaris, P-I-I. They make the snowmobiles? Mm-hmm. Um, I -I. Tiffany, T I F. Tiffany the jewelry store. Mm -hmm. T I F. Wells Fargo, W F C. Mastercard, <laughs> M A. The problems they've been having. Okay, Mastercard, M A. Um, Emerson Electric, E M R. Deer. D -E. Deer. What's Deer? John Deere Tractors. Oh, John Deere. Okay. Okay, there's a good list. There's a good list. So read that off again. Okay, so I have 21st Century Fox, Walt Disney, Polaris, Tiffany, Wells Fargo, MasterCard, Emerson Electric, and John Deere. Very good list. All right, so we have... You know what I find interesting about that list is they're all... Except for Emerson, they're all consumer-facing companies. That's because I picked those off the longer list. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me add one more. Visa. So that we would all be familiar with them? Yeah. So okay. one more on there. Visa. 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 And let's do one more. We'll make it an even nine. Um, we'll put Salesforce on there. And it is CRM. CRM. So there we have an even 10 companies that right now, or at least 30 days ago, Morningstar thought were a little bit on, at least somewhat on sale. And that would mean about 30% below, 20 to 30% below their, what Morningstar thinks is their retail value. They also have high return on equity. They also have high free cash flow to revenue. And then we want to understand what else do they have that gives them that? Because those numbers are always looking out the back window of the car. They're historical numbers. And you can't drive your car looking out the back window. And therefore, you have to know what has, predict, what has produced those numbers in the past. 
that made them so good. And then you got to think about it like thinking about Coca-Cola is the moat getting broken down by the barbarians at the gate. Um, are, is something happening here? Are, are one of these companies, because they're a little bit on sale, there must be some fear around them. Are some of these companies harness making companies in an era of new automobiles? Are, are some of them typewriter companies as the computer is starting to come along? So we want to look at them. Have they got a moat for the future? Do you, are you feeling so comfortable about this business that you know it's going to be around here rocking and rolling 10 years from now, doing just as good or better than it's doing right now? And one of these, John Deere, is one that Warren Buffett went on CNBC and said, I'm buying it because it's going to be worth more in 10 years than it is today. That is the ultimate statement of moat that we're looking for. And with that, I got to go, honey. Um, yeah, I'm interested to find out how you look into this because you've asked a lot of questions. And Well, what, I, what I'd what i like you to do is to just try to figure out what moat quality do they have on this list of moat qualities we've got. Brand, secret, switch, toll, price, network. What quality of moat do each of these have that has generated these numbers in the past? And then... Will it continue into the future of the next 10 years? Do you think it will continue in the future? See if you can do two or three of them anyway, everybody. You know? Yeah, it's a lot. So let's do two or three, everybody. And, um, and then we'll go through. Right, going through 10 is going to take a while, but we'll go through them next time. Okay, then I think we're out of here. Okay. Good talk. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE. That's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.